everyone. Welcome to my podcast, PR Not BS with Fiona Scott. It's brilliant to be with you again. I hope you're having a great day, a great week, a great month. How are things with you? Whatever you're doing today, whether you're running, you're in the car, you're listening at home or in your office, thank you very much for listening in. And today I'm joined by a business contact, a friend called Chris Maslin. I'm not going to tell you about him. He's going to tell you about him. So welcome, Chris. Introduce yourself. Hi, Fiona. Hi, everybody. Um, yeah, my name is Chris Maslin. Um, I'm an accountant and tax advisor by background. Uh, but 18 months ago, I sold my business to an employee ownership trust. So that's predominantly what I'm here to talk about today. Um, just about employee ownership in general, why it can be a good potentially exit plan for business owners or indeed for some who don't want to leave. They want to stay around, but they want to change how things work there. Okay, so I'm going to roll you back a bit. Give us sort of your CV in a nutshell before Go EO, which is the name of your business now. I did economics at Southampton University. I got a degree there. I then went on to work for a firm who are no longer with us, but were called Tenon. That's where I trained to be a chartered accountant. Uh, So this is back in the early noughties. Um, After that, I worked for Baker Tilly, who are still around. And there I did my chartered tax advisor exams. Around about 2008, I set up my own accountancy practice, imaginatively called Maslin's Accountants. Um, That grew organically year after year. And after about 13 years, um, there was a senior team that were largely running it without me anyway. I perhaps had lost interest and was more interested in other things. Um, So the Employee Ownership Trust was something that I looked at as a way of handing it over to the staff gradually over a period of time so I could more guilt-free step away rather than perhaps might have been my stereotypical option for someone in my position which would be to sell it to a big competitor who more often than not would take on board the clients sack half the staff uh, and just you know leave me feeling like I've got a lot of money in my back pocket but I feel a bit guilty about the whole thing. So when you sort of came to the end of your own accountancy business or you were thinking I need to do something else I need to exit What did success look like for you? Because most people would have just thought, I'll sell the business, I'll make some money and, you know, I don't know, I'll play golf all day or whatever it is. What was success to you at that time? I mean, I'm only 41 now. I was 40 at the time. So the idea of fully retiring doesn't appeal. Yes, I, I couldn't fathom the idea of sitting on my backside watching daytime TV all day or, you know, playing golf, going to the Bahamas, whatever. Um, So I did take six months where I wouldn't say I did nothing, but I didn't take on any new sort of significant projects. I did take it easy. Partly that's because I still had and still do have some ongoing responsibilities with the accountancy firm. So it wasn't the case if I sign on the dotted line, that's it, I'm totally done there. It was a significant change when I signed on the dotted line and there was no going back. I'm in the nice position where, you know, I don't have any money problems at all. More money is always better than less money, however much you've got, but certainly getting more money isn't a focus of mine. But I would be utterly bored doing nothing. So I suppose my new business and the things that I'm working on now are based more about finding purpose in life, I suppose. You know, it makes me think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, uh, where once you get near the top, it's all about feeling good about what you do uh, rather than necessarily, look, I need to put food on the table. Okay, so what was the attraction of an employee ownership model then? Why did that appeal to you? So as I alluded to earlier, it was a way of selling the business. You know, I should stress that. Sometimes people think that it's a philanthropic thing to do. It can be, but it certainly doesn't have to be, and it isn't normally. You know, you are generally selling the business. Um, So 
I got money out of it. I did quite well out of it. I'm not shying away from that. But it meant that the staff are now in charge of that business. They're the ones that can choose how to run it going forward. And if the business does well, they will be the ones that benefit. So from sort of guilt or my my ethical standpoint, it sat more nicely with me than selling to a bigger competitor. So now you're moving into helping other company owners or directors seeing this as a way forward for their businesses. So what is the appeal? What might a company owner be thinking of that they could consider this as a viable option for them? So most people looking at this will be doing it as a full exit plan. So quite often they would be in their 60s and they want to retire. Um, So being honest, that's more normal than than what I did doing a little bit younger, but I'm certainly not the only person who's done this. And so in terms of why would you be interested? Well, you need to understand you are selling your business. There's no getting away from that. It's just sort of what I might call an internal sale. Um, So it needs to be someone who, for whatever reason, feels like they're happy to move on. It could be that they're seeking to retire. It could be that they're interested in other things. It could just be that they feel like, you know, they've done their part in the business and really it should be left to other people to take it forwards. So why would you want to look at an employee ownership trust as opposed to other options? Well, as I alluded to, a trade sale. So by that, I mean selling to a competitor, possibly venture capital, someone like that. You might get more money that way, but more often than not, they, you know, they will be looking at it as a hard-nosed economic transaction and they might not want to keep on all the staff. Almost certainly your brand name will disappear. They will just merge you into theirs. Um, so for a lot of people, that might be the most financially lucrative option, but it doesn't always sit that well. And even just from a hard-nosed perspective, it can be very painful. Anyone who's buying your business will be trawling over it with a fine-tooth comb, doing lots of due diligence. So it's sort of the the business equivalent of getting an in-depth survey done on a house that you're buying. And what tends to happen after that? Well, they say, ah, you know, we may have offered X and you agree to that, but having looked at this, we're going to reduce the price a bit to Y. There will also often be sort of clawbacks and various bits and pieces that mean that it doesn't end up being quite as good as you might have initially hoped. Um, So another key option people can look at, and it used to be very viable, is a management buyout. So that's similar in some respects to an employee ownership trust in that your staff, albeit that it's more normally a handful of senior staff, are buying the business from you. The key thing with an MBO is that the staff are using their own money to buy it. And this is partly why it's not that viable anymore, is that, you know, nowadays your average 30 to 40 year old high flyer who might be interested in taking the business over from the 60 year old who's disappearing. Well, they've probably just about scraped together a 10% deposit on the flat. The chances of them, you know, coming up with quarter a million quid or whatever it might be to buy out the founder is quite limited. So a trust is one way that, you know, you create a buyer rather than finding one. Your staff take over control, but they don't have to put any money in. It's also totally tax-free, provided you meet certain criteria. Um, So probably some of that, I'm aware, makes it sound a little bit too good to be true. So it's maybe worth me just highlighting a couple of the the negatives, for want of a better word. A downside is you tend to get paid over a much longer period of time than you do with other sale methods. There isn't any cash coming in on day one. So you can potentially get an upfront payment if your company is sitting on a big stockpile of cash. But otherwise, you're looking at getting paid out of future profits that the company makes. And a risk attached to that is if the staff make an utter pig's ear of it and the business dies a death within six months of you selling, well, you're not going to get paid. So, you know, you need to be aware of that. And that's why it's really on you to make sure that even if you are stepping away, that you're involved enough to make sure that, well, as best you can, that you don't leave it to collapse the second you disappear. 
Okay, so let's go back to your company because you're young to have done this. You must have looked at your company and thought, yeah, that's going to work for me. I'm going to be paid back over time. You must have looked at that. Yeah, certainly. So I've got a lot of faith in the staff. And I think one of the key things for me was when I realised they were more excited about the growth of the business than I was. And considering that from a pure financial perspective, at the time, they would get their fixed salary regardless. If the business grows and makes more money, I'm the one that benefits from that. It didn't seem right. And I don't really feel like you can in, be inspired by a leader who's lost interest. And so, you know, it wasn't a binary thing that one day I loved it and I was really driving it. The next day I totally lost interest. But it did drift towards me feeling, you know, I'm not excited about this anymore, which means I'm not pushing it, which makes me feel like I'm not the right person to lead this. And some of the senior staff were very excited about it, were very keen to push it. So, you know, I could have just promoted them and said, you know, you're in charge now, but I still kept the shares. But I felt like this seemed a nice way of maybe putting my money there, money where the mouth is kind of thing and saying, look, you're not only in charge, but actually if you do a great job, it's going to be you that benefits going forward. What are they doing now that you weren't doing? Nothing really. Um, so, you know, we're 18 months in. I think that all parties, me and the senior team, were keen to not make any huge changes very soon after sale because it's already a significant change. There's a bit of instability there. So I think there's an element of, right, let's just steady the ship, make sure everyone's happy with how it's going. And then gradually, once we get a bit more comfortable in, in the new regime, then we can look at thinking, right, what do we maybe want to do a little bit differently? So it has changed my relationship with them. Legally, I'm no longer their boss, or at least in terms of the, the two most senior staff we've got there. They are equal to me now. That has occasionally caused issues. Um, I mean, it's it's a humbling experience. and I've never been a draconian boss, um, but it does take a bit of getting used to from all sides that I'm not in charge anymore. And I think that one of the things that we've both found a bit frustrating is that when I express my opinion, they still feel like, oh, Chris is the boss. That means this is what we've got to do. And I stress to them, no, that's not the case. If you both disagree with me, we go with what you want. And they understand that that's the case on paper. But I think it can be hard to change that mindset, you know, where I brought them in, I trained them up, et cetera, et cetera. It, yeah, it's hard to change their mindset that they can ignore me if they both want to do something different to what I think is best. So the moment they do ignore you and do something different will be quite a seminal moment, I guess, for you. Yes. And, you know, we certainly have had that, but so far it's only been on minor things where I guess, you know, I've sort of said, personally, I would perhaps do this, but, I, you know, it's not a big deal. You go ahead and do that instead. There was sort of one more significant thing recently where they'd agreed on something and I just felt like I needed to say to them, look, I think that this is a mistake and here's why. Uh, you know, I did stress to them, but look, you can outvote me if you still want to go ahead with this do so. Um, but I think they felt like I'd effectively said, no, I'm overruling you here. So it's, it's it's a tricky one because I don't want to feel like I can't give my opinion because otherwise there's no point me being here whatsoever. Uh, so it's tricky getting that balance and trying not to be forceful, but equally, if I have a strong opinion, still feeling like I can and should give it. Uh, but I suppose the flip side is they should then be strong enough that if they strongly feel like my opinion is wrong, say we disagree with you and actually we're going to overrule you and do what we think is best. Oh, be interesting. I'll probably have to do another uh, podcast with you in a year's time to see where you are then, Chris. But back in your accountancy days, talk to me about marketing and PR. What were your routes to market to make outreach and increase your impact? I will come on to GoEO in a minute, but what would you do regularly? What was in your marketing budget or did you even have one? Well, I'm ashamed to say our marketing budget was perhaps a bit of time from people who are not marketers. So we didn't have any paid marketers. It's a bit of time from 
people like myself in terms of budget very little so you know we had a website we, we obviously still have a website which periodically we spend a bit of money um, to get that updated and refreshed we do dabble with tiny budget on google adwords but at the moment it's predominantly just that frustrating thing where you need to pay just to appear for your own brand name because otherwise you might be the number one organic listing but if three of your competitors are paying they'll all appear above you which is frustrating um so paid marketing very little it's something that I'm keen to push a bit more now. I mean, perhaps relevant to what I was talking about before, one of the things that's interested me is that prior to the EOT transfer, the two most senior staff were really keen to push the business, go for massive growth, et cetera, et cetera. But perhaps because legally I was responsible for everything, I was the one saying, whoa, 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 slow down. Can't, you know, I want to make sure we're just growing comfortably that we can cope with it. Since the EOT transfer, if anything, that's flipped on its head. And I'm the one saying, to some extent, look, I'm not really responsible for getting the actual work done anymore. So come on, let's really drive this forward. And they go, whoa, whoa, whoa. Um, so what do we do? Well, no, there's no exciting answers here. We rely heavily on referrals. I suppose most accountancy businesses do. It can be a bit of a grudge purchase, but it's also that kind of thing that once you've got an accountant, you stick with them until things go horribly wrong. So it's recurring business, which is quite nice, which makes sort of steady, slow growth relatively easy. Um, PR wise, I mean, I suppose, you know, I have in my head that there's two different, very different parts of PR. There's the getting yourself covered positively in news stories, which is great. And we've had a trivial amount of that. Um, the flip side is something's gone horrendously wrong. There's loads of publicity, negative publicity about you. How do you very quickly minimize the damage from that? And again, touch wood, we haven't had to deal with that. Um, so PR, very little. Well, I asked that question mainly because I know what people in the financial and legal sector think of PR. They'll generally go down the, throw a load of pay out, paid ads at local press, uh, the community that they're based in. Um, they'll rely heavily on networking and referral and face-to-face, which is great. I mean, that still is the best way to do PR. It just depends how much growth you want, I guess. Um, and they can be a little bit nervous of people like me. Like I'm going to wrestle them to the ground and force them to get that news out there. Um, I would say the potential for good PR is fabulous, especially if you've got a group of fabulous people who have good expertise in whatever area it is. Uh, crisis management is always, you know, something anyone should consider. Um, for a small business, I probably deal with that twice a year. So it's, it's not that common. Um, and that your biggest risk is social media. Because people these days just pick up their phone, say what they want, and they will. So now you've got GoEO, what's your view of PR for that then, Chris? I suppose I'm pushing it a bit more, which I guess is partly because I feel like employee ownership in general is still not that well known about. Um, and in particular, the employee ownership trust. Even lots of accountants know nothing about it. So I feel like there's more an element of awareness building, whereas... With the accountancy business, you know, having to do accounts and tax returns, that's been around for yonks. So there's nothing new there. Um, hence, it's more just a case of us trying to say, well, why should you choose us rather than our competitor? But both businesses actually realistically have got a UK wide reach. So, you know, things like face to face networking, we've never really bothered with for that reason. Uh, equally, the local newspaper has never been something we've pushed. But I suppose that means some of the more general PR Things like internet forums perhaps have proved a, a better route of avenue for us. But PR-wise for Goio, well, you know, I, I gather you're um, looking to start up a, 
a modest sort of what was the word a soft touch group fairly soon you keen to be involved in that well, I think, Chris, for me, OK, looking at you and talking today, and I don't mean this to be a sales pitch, it's all about you and that backstory you've just shared with us. Plus, when people find you and like you, they'll start to associate you with that EO trust. So that if it comes up somewhere else, um, as particularly if they're at an age where they could be really successful and want to move on. I work with a high net worth individual who's similar age to you who did go off and decided that actually golf after six months was really boring and he needed to do other stuff. But or someone who's in their 60s, they're going to start to get their um, pensions going to start to kick in and they want to do something else. But they probably don't want their brand to completely disappear. All that hard work they've put in for decades. And it's important to them that it goes either to employees or to someone who cares about the business. I think that's a big thing here. Because even though I know you're quite, you're going to be money driven and financially acute, because that's what your expertise is. But there's also, I think there's a strong caring element around you that is kind of there, but you haven't pressed that button yet. But it's there, definitely. At the risk of sounding like smashy and nicey, and, you know, over the last, in particular, five years to lesser extent, 10 years, you know, we've got involved in a lot of charities locally and, and, and given a bit of money. And the EOT isn't charitable, but it, it's similar to that. And it's something that makes me a little bit sad about the world. that You can get people who have huge amounts of money and yet still want more. And it, it's been scientifically proven. It doesn't bring you more happiness beyond a certain point. But I guess it's just, you know, if you look at what the neighbours got, you want something better. And it doesn't matter whether it's that their Skoda is one model up from yours or their Ferrari is one model up from yours. You still want to have a little bit more than the neighbor. And so, yeah, trying to get away from that. Um, and I think employee ownership, I mean, it's a difficult, it, well, it's a, you brought me onto, it's a problem I've had from a marketing perspective for it. And I think there's two very different messages I can give out and they don't really link brilliantly. One of them is the lovely progressive left-wing side of it. You know, give the power to the staff, give the profits to the staff. Isn't that wonderful? Reduce the wealth divide, lovely. But the flip side is, is that at the moment, these businesses are owned by the founder who owns the shares, has all that wealth, generally is quite affluent. Um, and we obviously need to try and encourage them to put the business into employee ownership. And that's where, you know, things like the, the tax-free bit comes in which is is lovely, but it, it it's a very different message because it is almost, hey, you're already quite rich. We can help you get loads of money tax-free, which sits awkwardly alongside do the noble thing and give all the money to the staff. Yeah, but I think there's also that thing of um, empowering staff to be entrepreneurial because they have a bit more personal investment in the business. I mean, I'm thinking of like, I, I walked into our local Waitrose this morning, there's a big sign up saying, our staff are not staff, they are part owners and they are partners of the business. And I know that goes back to their Quaker roots and things like that, but there are, in Swindon, we have the National Self-Build and Renovation Centre, which is employee-owned, and they voted someone to be their MD. And although it's taken five years to come from a negative situation back into profit, there is something, the energy of a company where the employees have ownership, I've noticed, does feel different when you walk into that building or that premises because they have a vested interest in success if they're willing to learn the skills. Yeah, and I, I certainly hope that's the case. I think there is some evidence to back that up. Um, you know, the reality is, is that if you work in an employee-owned business and you manage to improve that business so it makes more money, you will gain some of the rewards from that. 
probably employer-owned businesses don't attract, you know, the most extreme mavericks because the reality is, you know, if you single-handedly turn that business around in some amazing way and it's employee-owned and you're just an employee, you will be sharing those profits with all the other staff. So if you think you're the bee's knees, you're more likely want to go the traditional route and you own the shares. Um, but yes, it's, it's, you know, it's all about team spirit, about having each other's backs and about working together to try and improve the business, which does include giving clients a better service. You know, we talked a bit about referrals earlier. It could apply to shops as well. You're just a bit more likely to go back to that shop rather than the competitor if you've got better service. And perhaps if, if you're someone who partly owns that business, you'll be thinking about that. And so you're less likely to be the sort of snotty nosed, not my department, I can't help you person. I'm more trying to think, okay, I don't know the answer to this person's question, but perhaps I can find out or, you know, just help them as best I can. So Chris, now that you are this new person with GoEO, what do you do when you're not working then? Give us a little bit of Chris when he's not at work. Well, my wife criticizes me for not having any hobbies, which I don't think is quite true. But, you know, she's a musician, so she plays a bunch of instruments and all that kind of stuff, which is like a more clear cut hobby. You mentioned golf earlier. I'm no golfer at all, but I do enjoy a bit of pitch and putt with some of the staff here. Um, what else do I do outside work? Um, we have a dog, an eight year old Labradoodle. So he needs walking a fair bit. And perhaps because of that, you know, a lot of our holidays are UK based, sort of, you know, the Yorkshire Dales or something like that. Um, so yeah, just a bit of this, a bit of that. Cool. Right, Chris, how can anyone find you if they are interested in you or they're interested in GoEO? Sort of, yeah, give me the sales pitch. Um, so I'm fairly active on LinkedIn. Um, Chris Maslin, my surname isn't quite unique, but there's not that many of us around. So you should find me fairly easily, uh, more so than John Smith. The business website is goeo.uk. So that's just G-O-E-O.uk. Yeah, you'll find me quite easy. In terms of a sales pitch for GoEO, really we're there to try and help the smaller businesses go employee-owned. Reason being, there are plenty of law firms out there that do effectively what we do, but they're only interested in the bigger businesses, you know, the likes of Richer Sounds, Go Ape, Ardman Animation, all of which have gone employee-owned in the last few years. The ones with 100 plus staff where they can get the big juicy fees. And so, you know, my background is in the small business world. So we're really pitching businesses between five to 25 employees. So turnover wise, that's often anywhere from sort of a quarter of a million at the bottom end up to perhaps five million, where the owner doesn't necessarily want to disappear completely, but they're happy to sell. They have faith in their staff, you know, with a, with a bit of a handover period and they like the sound of it, then that's exactly what we're there to help. Marvellous. Well, you've got that elevator pitch off to a T, Chris. Look, thank you so much for joining me today. I'll catch up with you soon. But um, you know what to do. If you've enjoyed listening to Chris and that's something you're interested in or you know someone who might be interested in that, you find all the ways to contact him. And also I'll put them into the show notes. If you want to find me, it's scottmedia.uk. I'm on Twitter at the Fiona Scott. Or feel free to join my Facebook group, Fiona Scott's PR Tribe. Thank you so much for listening and um, I'll be back again in a couple of weeks. Bye.